0: From MIT Technology Review, I'm Elizabeth Bramson Boudreaux, and this is Business Lab, the show that helps business leaders make sense of new technologies coming out of the lab and into the marketplace. This episode is brought to you by Darktrace, the world leader in AI technology for cyber defense. Later in the program, I'll speak with the CEO of Darktrace, Nicole Egan. She'll show us how advances in AI and machine learning are giving us a new set of ways to defend against hackers and cyber criminals. But our first guest hails from one of the newest centers for AI research, the MIT IBM Watson AI Lab, just a couple of blocks from our offices here in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It's the locus of more than 50 new projects involving IBM researchers and MIT faculty, all aimed at advancing the fundamental technologies behind artificial intelligence. And here to talk with us is one of the architects of that effort, Dr. Sophie Vanderbroek. Sophie's currently IBM's Vice President of Emerging Technology Partnerships, and she's known in the computing industry for her distinguished history pushing innovation forward, not only at IBM, but at Xerox, where she spent over a decade as the Chief Technology Officer. At Xerox, she was the director of Park Incorporated, the famous laboratory formerly known as Xerox Park. In 2011, she was inducted into the Women in Technology Hall of Fame. In keeping with the themes of the MIT IBM Watson AI Lab, we started off talking about how AI is evolving and why it's transforming businesses in ways that most executives are only
1: starting to understand.
0: Sophie, thank you for coming here to talk with us, uh, and welcome.
1: Oh, it's my great pleasure to be here. I've been an avid reader of your journal, so very happy to participate in the podcast.
0: I'm hoping you can talk to uh, not only me, but the people who are listening uh, to this podcast about where AI is going, the stage that we're in in AI development. I know that a lot of people talk about how AI has been on the verge of transforming work, only to kind of have those hopes peter out. Could we possibly be in another one of these situations where it peters out? Or is
1: this different now? It's very different now. AI is real. Um, And yes, uh, the word artificial intelligence was coined 70 years ago almost. So we're many decades later. So what happened? Uh, Why uh, was it not real then and why is it real now? Uh, there are two main reasons why it's real now, and it's both because of exponential loss. The first one is Moore's Law that we all know and love very well. Uh, the transistor, the basic transistor, was invented in the 50s. By 1975, there were 1,000 transistors on a centimeter square chip. Today, there are 10 billion transistors on a centimeter square chip that IBM develops today, uh, and those Compute power has resulted in the mobile devices we have in our pockets, are the latest high performance computer, the Summit, another you know, IBM uh, computed at Oak Ridge National Lab, uh, purchased recently. It does 200 petaflops, which is 200,000 trillion calculations per second. I mean, super fast, right? So we have a volume, I mean, a huge amount of compute power, which is critical for AI to be real. In addition, the second uh, law, which was Metcalf, Metcalf's law, and Bob Metcalf, uh, who also was part of the Boston community for a long time, was at Xerox Park. Uh, and as you know, before joining IBM, I was a few decades in, in Xerox, working closely with the Park team, when he invented the Ethernet. And the Ethernet uh, connected the value of the Ethernet or the value of a network is proportional to two to the n, with n the number of devices on the network. And so that's called Metcast Law. And it's part, it, it not only refers to the, uh, the internet, but obviously to the World Wide web, to social networks, and it has created many very valuable companies that we all know today. Uh, but in addition, it has created a huge volume of data, right? And so the data on the web together with the structured digital data that many enterprises have today, many enterprises have started to, to digitize all their work processes uh, together with all the data that comes from sensors with the Internet of Things uh, and s- sensors in manufacturing and uh, cameras, ubiquitous cameras, et cetera, there is a huge amount of data affected exponentially, increased over the last decade uh, or more now. Um, and so the winters happened because indeed there wasn't the compute power and there wasn't the data to train these neural networks. And today, uh, we have the compute power, we have the data, and a huge amount of progress has been made in the neural networks over the last five years uh, since uh, for the first time in 2012, it was a deep learning neural network, which was running on a a graphical processing unit, a GPU, uh, that for the first time won a competition for image recognition. Uh, and in fact, it, uh, in these narrow areas, AI does sup- superhuman quality and super speed. Uh, and so for these reasons, these two exponentials, AI is real. And in fact, I would say artificial intelligence itself is now at the beginning of an exponential curve uh, that we, we are creating exponentially fast new insights that individuals, no matter what industry you're in, can use to make uh, fast real-time decisions as well, it can accelerate uh, the discovery process in life sciences or uh, research and development overall. So it, it's being used um, and, and it has really capability to impact multiple fields.
0: So that's a great uh, explanation of what has really enabled the shift and why AI is such a ubiquitous topic in, uh, in, for business leaders today. What does it allow, what does AI allow businesses to do that might have been hard or even impossible to do a decade ago?
1: Yeah, so it has, it allows businesses to both uh, increase their effectiveness and efficiency uh, from a bottom line point of view, from a profitability point of view, but it also allows them to create whole new business models and new revenue opportunities. Let me give an example of the first one. Uh, For example, virtual agents, uh, which fit in this category of narrow AI, which we just passed that phase within a phase of broad AI today, and we can talk about that before we will get to general artificial intelligence. But like the virtual agents or the chatbots that many of us know and interact with today as part of customer service, um, uh, just didn't exist a decade ago. Everything was done by uh, call center agents uh, that had to leverage big databases to get you your uh, answer to your questions, et cetera. Well, today, most of that uh, uh, virtual agents can do in a very effective and efficient way. In fact, some of these virtual agents today will very quickly assess whether you're extrovert or introvert and adjust adjusted language accord- accordingly uh, to your style. Um, also automation, for example, if you drive your car uh, through a toll boot today, uh, it's totally automatic license plate recognition uh, and reading of the license plate, such that within the backend processes, you actually get uh, charged for driving through the toll boot. Um Again, most of these processes were all done manually in the past. Pictures would be taken of license plate, would be sent to India to be processed, and then uh, the, the four out of five people give your license plate as input to the system, then you would get billed. I mean, these are all these transactional routine, very narrow, very specific processes uh, that are automated today.
0: This all sounds fantastic. Um, And as a business leader, I can think, you know, why wouldn't I want to see greater efficiencies? But are there things that I perhaps need to be thinking about around the risks of machine learning based tools?
1: Yeah, definitely there are risks. Um, And uh, many enterprises at at IBM, it's top of mind and we're creating the tools and capabilities as part of IBM OpenScale or uh, we have other toolkits, I'll highlight one of them. Uh, to help enterprises uh, to deal with risk. It's also starting to become top of mind of uh, boards and directors of companies to make sure that these risks are related to uh, deploying and embracing artificial intelligence as part of the organization are addressed. Uh, let, me, let me just highlight a few. Number one is making sure that the algorithms, the AI algorithms are fair, uh, that, uh, the outcome of the AI algorithm, uh, as AI assists humans in making decisions, that the decisions are fair and ethical and not biased. So uh, we have just launched open source. Anybody can help us improve it. The AI, so IBM Research Open Source AI Fairness 360 toolkit where you can pull in your algorithm and then it's checked for all kinds of biases. Today we check for gender bias uh, age bias, um, race bias, things like zip code bias. Some of the reasons for the bias is that the data set which, which the algorithm is trained, and especially in enterprises, enterprises don't have huge volumes of data like in the consumer world, right, where there could be a huge amount of cat pictures to train an image algorithm to recognize a cat. And the enterprises... Uh, where a company, let's say a hospital or a school or an enterprise, has limited amount of data to train the algorithms, so the data might not have sufficient amount of uh, diversity and inclusion within the data sets so that, in fact, the algorithms become biased. One example, for example, in uh, human resource departments are starting to use uh, AI to help source new employees. And so if you source for software developers, uh, leveraging an AI algorithm that might be trained on your data, the algorithm will learn that most of the software developers are male because that's what you hired in the past. So the risk is that algorithms might then recommend that your next hire, looking at all the resumes, uh, they might proportionally recommend more males and females for software engineering jobs. And we all know that gender is relevant for a software engineer. It just so happens that the historical data was biased uh, within the data. So the tools will then recommend uh, uh, to have a more diverse data set. OK,
0: so what are some of the other risks?
1: OK, the other risks are, and, and uh, it's, it's more, I mean, today's algorithms, especially deep learning and the neural networks, are like black boxes, right? So the risk is, the algorithm will give you an answer. Yes, you get a loan, or no, you get a loan. Or yes, you have skin cancer, because narrow AI is better than humans to identify skin cancer, but it can't explain. It doesn't explain why or how it got to that answer. Uh, and so explainability is very important. So that is a risk that in your business you won't be able to explain how certain answers were achieved. And in fact, in the European Union with GDPR, uh, the general data protection regulations, it is a requirement. Companies can't even use AI if it cannot explain itself. Everything needs to be able to be explained.
0: So tell us a bit about the MIT IBM Watson AI Lab and its mission.
1: Yeah, thank you for for the question. This is a a very exciting partnership uh, between IBM Research and MIT uh, that we established a little over a year ago. Um, And so uh, it's a $240 million commitment by IBM uh, over 10 years, and it is a unique uh, lab, uh, university-industrial collaboration lab in the world. No other one of such kind exists. Uh, in fact, um, uh, myself and the dean of engineering, Anta at UNTAD, MIT, uh, started brainstorming uh, in the summer. La- in the summer of uh, twenty seventeen, I believe it was.
0: And You told me it all happened rather quickly. It happened in three weeks. Yeah,
1: between. Uh, maybe four weeks if I had uh, if I include the lunch and and I had um, before uh, our senior vice president talked to the president of MIT on a Monday morning and three weeks later on a Friday the contract was signed, and so it is indeed uh, the vision was to create this joint lab of about a hundred researchers and researchers included IBM researchers, MIT professors and students. Um, And we celebrated our first anniversary in September, uh, last September, 2018. And indeed, we have 49 joint projects that are active today with about uh, 100 people, or the equivalent of 100 people uh, on those projects. And they are really, they're research projects, they're not applied technology. We really wanted to make sure that those 50 projects uh, are addressing the most difficult problems in AI. And they, and they are doing exactly that. Like, um, so that there are four pillars. We defined four pillars. One is around core AI algorithms. Uh, and there is exactly where we are addressing this difficult issue, like uh, AI that can explain itself. Or most uh, are learning from small data, uh, different methodologies to learn from uh, small data, like hospitals have small set of patients with a small set of data
0: to address the the problem you mentioned before about yes. how on the enterprise side there isn't there often is not enough data to really train the algorithms not so, to
1: wait, stone in the past in the right. in the narrow ai phase now we are in this phase of of broad ai where systems will have to learn from small data so several of the projects in MIT IBM Watson AI lab are also associated uh, with that Uh, The second pillar is applying AI to industries, and today we're looking at three industries, uh, healthcare and life sciences, because IBM uh, business unit, uh, the Watson Health Business Unit is headquartered right here in Cambridge, uh, Massachusetts. Uh, AI applied to industry also is the uh, uh, security applied to security businesses, and of course security is relevant for all industries. And then the third industry that we're focused on is uh, financial financial services, so finance and uh, economics. So that's the second pillar, there are four pillars in MIT, IBM Watson AI Lab. The third one uh, is the, we call it the physics of AI. Uh, what are the hardware challenges to do efficient and effective training in the clouds as well as at the edge? And then the fourth category, one that I'm very excited about is a category we call prosperity enabled by AI or shared prosperity enabled by AI. It's again, looking at these challenges of how to create true AI systems that have truly moral values uh, that can make ethical decisions? What is the future of jobs, for example, or projects that we have in that category? And so, so yeah, these are the four pillars. Core AI algorithms, physics of AI, AI for industries, and prosperity enabled by AI. And now that we celebrate our first anniversary, we have just uh, agreed between MIT and IBM that we will open our doors for other large enterprises that are truly interested to be at the cutting edge of research uh, in artificial intelligence uh, to join our lab. So that's what we're working on next.
0: Two areas that we at MIT Technology Review are spending a lot of time reporting on are cryptocurrencies, so blockchain, and quantum computing. I would really like to hear what you all are doing in those areas, and maybe we can start with crypto. Um, And I guess the question I'd have is, um, how do we think about Blockchain as being more than a curiosity and actually something that's trustworthy and stable and can kind of enhance the um, the business uh, context in which it's used. Uh,
1: yes, you 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 uh, set right word there. So it's all about trust uh, when uh, at IBM when we talk about blockchain. In fact, blockchain, a lot of research was happening on blockchain for several years in the research labs, and IBM created a business now about two and a half years ago, a blockchain business unit. Uh, I see three kind of areas where uh, blockchain is being used today, or where there is a lot of um, uh, prototypes experimenting. One is indeed in uh, cryptocurrencies, like Bitcoin, uh, and that's how most people... No blockchain, they, they think about Bitcoin, and that's the whole area of cryptocurrency. At IBM, we are not interested in cryptocurrency because our customers are not interested in cryptocurrencies. We uh, are interested in the underlying blockchain platform. And in fact, um, the, a lot of the underlying platform has been open source on Hyperledger, run by the Linux Foundation. Um, and IBM has contributed significantly to the code and we will continue to do so. The next one is uh, having blockchain, this underlying platform, uh, being used uh, in value chains to uh, track valuable goods or valuable digital goods uh, as they go from where they originate to where they're being used, and I can give some examples. And the third area where it's valuable, um, especially in the financial services industry, is around digital identity, and I can give some examples there. But what enterprises are interested in is to be able to create trusted transactions among partners that inherently, uh, that might not know each other, like small businesses or larger businesses or distributors or farmers. And so, creating the trust in a distributed way. So the blockchain networks that we have created with our with our clients uh, is our private networks. They're not open. They're like for everybody to join. They're private. It's permissioned only network. One of the first examples we did, uh, starting already many years ago, and it's now in operation, is uh, a blockchain network for food safety. We created with Walmart. Walmart was the pillar. Uh, member of this uh, blockchain network, and um, a lot of the Walmart suppliers are on the network. And they're just tracking food from the farm to the table. Uh, and especially, the intention here is that if, like, um, an outbreak of E. coli or any other food safety issue romaine occurs, lettuce, yeah, romaine lettuce—it happens yeah. all the time. We knew that the outbreak was in California somewhere, but everything, including lettuce whatever grown here in Massachusetts was taken off the shelf, right? That's what happens today. It takes a long time to track uh, where an outbreak happened. But if you track all your lettuce or all your goods um, through the blockchain, within two minutes or faster, you can quickly track where this particular lettuce came from. Then you still need to go in and see at which point in the chain from farm to store or to table did the E. coli actually... Uh, contaminate the food uh, and and that's but that's easier than first figuring out even where did it come from right
0: great well absolutely wonderful to hear from you and to have the chance to talk to you again and uh it's great having the lab just around the corner uh it's, okay. it's um it's a it's a wonderful facility and uh it's good to have you in the neighborhood so thank you
1: well thank you so much it was my great pleasure
0: This episode is brought to you by Darktrace, the world leader in cyber AI technology. Darktrace is headquartered in San Francisco in Cambridge, England. It has around 2,500 customers around the world who use its software to detect and respond to cyber threats to their businesses, users, and devices. Darktrace has built innovative machine learning technology that can spot unusual activity. To find out more about how that works, I talk with the company's CEO, Nicole Egan. Nice to be able to talk.
2: No problem. Appreciate
0: you're doing this. I've heard you say that at Dark Trace you compare your brand of cybersecurity to the human immune system. And I hope
2: you can explain to us what you mean by that. So it's, uh, what really was happening is I think the security industry was obsessed with trying to keep the bad guys out. And what we came to recognize is that many times the very sophisticated attackers, such as the nation states, are going to get into any network that they want to. So we decided to kind of turn the problem the other way around and assume that the bad guys were inside or were going to be able to get inside. That led us to this idea of actually basing our artificial intelligence on the principles of the human immune system. So if you think about the human body's immune system, it has an innate sense of self. That allows it to know what's not self and have a very precise and rapid response. That's exactly how our artificial intelligence work. It's embedded inside each one of our customers' uh, companies. And it's just learning uh, a sense of self, what's normal, what we call the pattern of life of every user and device connected to that network. And that allows us to be able to find things that are out of the ordinary and literally stop the attacks uh, or neutralize them in their tracks. And how do you see, in general, more
0: generally, cyber attacks changing these days? Be they coming out of nation states or out of you know individual sort of bad guys, cyber criminals?
2: I was I was meeting with a um, chief security officer of one of our customers recently, and I think he had a, a great way of describing it. He said, "Just think, there's a team, somebody else, somewhere else in the world, and that team's full time job." is thinking about how to either steal your intellectual property or somehow get information from you. And that's really what companies are up against. And the reason for that is the kind of cyber arms race where we're used to governments fighting against governments, while that's still taking place, we now have this whole new dimension where nation states are actually possibly attacking the uh, companies. And that means that that digital battlefield has really shifted. And that's something that most corporations really haven't had to defend against in the past. Now you complicate and combine that with the fact that these nation states in many cases can also be organized with a very strong global cybercrime ring. And that kind of uh, cooperation between those entities is also kind of a new dimension. So that's kind of what companies are up against that's quite new and quite novel compared to the attacks of of maybe five or ten years ago. Okay, so when it comes to what Darktrace does, um, are you
0: using artificial intelligence to detect attack, to defend against
2: attack, or both? That's an excellent question. You know, I think in some cases... Companies use artificial intelligence simply to automate human processes. So, for example, each company usually has a security operations center. You're going to have a number of um, threat analysts and incident responders in there. And there's one approach that says, well, why not just take AI and learn from the steps that they take and what's called the playbook to respond to breaches and automate it? And that, that can give you a, a little bit of an efficiency gain, but at the same time, it's not going to be a game changer. Um, the other thing I've seen AI used for is basically analyzing all of the historical attacks that have occurred on other people, on other companies, and try to use that as an indicator of future threats. Now, while sounds very interesting and kind of practical, it actually seems to be fundamentally flawed, and that's because the attacks change so rapidly. In fact, um, in many cases, there's just new strains of unknown attacks where a single line of code has changed, and now what's called the signatures no longer match. So uh, in our case, we are using numerous types of unsupervised, supervised, and deep learning to be able to not only find the attacks, but have the artificial intelligence know how to investigate the attack, and also, most importantly, how to actually take action. And that's very rare. There's, in fact, no other company using AI to take the
0: action. Right, so in a, so you are doing both things then. You're both detecting and taking
2: action. We're really using the AI to detect, investigate, and take the action. And that last part, the take the action, is the really difficult and really interesting bit. Um, it's great because it can respond to attacks very quickly. In fact, on average, it can respond in less than two seconds to an attack. And when these attacks move at machine speed, that's absolutely critical. But the other thing we did find from a practical perspective is that it does take time for people in the security organization, maybe this is the first time they're even working with artificial intelligence and being augmented it, it, it takes some time for them to actually build that trust so we've actually created a, new, a whole new capability of having it be able to make recommendations. What if the AI recommends what action we would take and has a human confirm it? And once the human starts seeing, wow, it's making the right recommendation every time, they build a trust and they put it into what we call active mode. So I think having done this now over the past five years across nearly 2,500 companies, we've gotten really good at understanding what it takes to build that trust relationship. But also our algorithms have gotten really strong and really smart at responding to these attacks in real time. So as the defense gets better, uh, isn't it fair to
0: say that attacks, too, will get better, will perhaps using AI to fight back against AI-oriented or
2: AI-organized cyber defense? You're absolutely right. Although it's kind of early days and we've only seen – indications that it can go in that direction. And we've seen things like behavioral attacks where it, the AI might learn actually your style and mode of communication that you use, let's say, in email. It's kind of been a somewhat basic machine learning at this stage, but we do fully expect that there will be a whole new category of attack called offensive AI. And that means that the attackers are start going to start to use Various forms of machine learning, AI, and eventually deep learning as part of the attacks. So that will change this whole industry overnight. And I think, by and large, that's something that a lot of executives probably haven't contemplated yet. Right. So it's very interesting, because as you were talking about the way Darktrace takes
0: stock of what, quote, normal activity is on on a network, it occurs to me that there might be other use cases for uh, that information or that insight. Um, and I wonder if beyond sort of cybersecurity, if you've thought about looking at normal activity to help with other kinds of things like, say, regulatory compliance or risk management, things like that.
2: Absolutely. I think it would, what's um, been interesting is we've created a really unique data set on behalf of our customers. Um, so. Each one of them who uses Darktrace for security today actually has embedded artificial intelligence that's learning this sense of self and is continuously learning and updating. And that's a data set that can be used for other things. It could be used for regulatory compliance. In fact, we have some Darktrace customers using us today for compliance with HIPAA and HITRUST in healthcare or... Um, with things like DFS, which is the uh, New York State Regulations for uh, Financial Services. So we see early indicators already of how these artificial intelligence models and that unique data set can be leveraged. I think one really interesting use case is mergers and acquisitions. We have some companies using us in due diligence phases for M&A to actually get more visibility into the target assets environment. And today they're they're using it to actually see if maybe there might be a competitor or a nation state uh, inside of that network who might be trying to steal intellectual property, for example. But there's much broader types of M&A due diligence that it could be used for. And finally, we have some customers uh, using us also for compliance with data privacy like GDPR by seeing what traffic might be going in and, in and out of Europe. So absolutely, I think, although today we kind of are only unlocking the power of that data set and our AI AI models for cybersecurity, we could make a decision in the future to help customers use other keys to unlock it to deliver additional value. Right, and do different things with that information.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. Nicole, thank you so much for talking to me about this. Thank you very much, Elizabeth. That's it for this episode of Business Lab. I'm your host, Elizabeth Bramson-Boudreau. I'm CEO and publisher of MIT Technology Review. We were founded in 1899 at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. You can find us in print, on the web, at dozens of live events each year, and now in audio form. For more information about the magazine and the show, please check out our website at technologyreview.com. Our show is available wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll take a moment to rate and review us at Apple Podcasts. Business Lab is a production of MIT Technology Review. The producer is Wade Roush with editorial help from Mindy Blodgett. Special thanks to our guests, Sophie Vanderbroek and Nicole Egan. And thank you to our sponsor, Darktrace, the world leader in AI technology for cyber defense. Thank you for listening. We'll be back soon with a new episode.